Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. I'm Pete Wright. 
And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Our time will come is over. You're now a real man. You didn't kneel down after the two slashes. All right, Andy, here we go. This is our uh, penultimate film in our collection of Anne Hui movies. Our time will come. And um, uh, there you go. What do you, what, uh, why, why'd we do this? Why'd we pick this one? Another one that we haven't seen? Uh, another one we hadn't seen that was rated uh, fairly positively and uh, was easier to get than some of the others. Well, that's that's sure true. So these are, are tough films to get. Th- this one is uh, uh, takes place in the 1940s, and it is the story of uh, a band of guerrillas fighting the authoritarian regime uh, on the um, uh, over. Hong Kong's relationship with China and no, with Japan, uh, or Japan. I mean, Japan's yeah. relationship in, in uh, China uh, in, just before or, the occupation Hong of Kong. Hong Kong, Hong Kong. <laughs> it's and really Hong Kong's relationship with Japan. It's, there's a lot of relationships. It's a, it's a real love <laughs> triangle between Hong Kong and China and Japan. <laughs> and they just love, they loved so hard at this time that they showed it uh, with uh, guerrillas and armies. And so that's what they're talking about. But I thought this was a funny, I didn't know if this was a laugh line uh, in Wikipedia. Quote, the film opened in China on July 1st, 2017 to commemorate and coincide with the 20th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from the United Kingdom to China. And I wondered if anybody who wrote that had seen this movie. (laughs) I felt like it was maybe it was not as celebratory a movie as maybe they thought it was in Wikipedia. Did they see how Dini Yip ends her role in this movie? Rough she dies for her country. For her country. That's right. That's right. That's right. This is my favorite time uh, of the show, Andy, where I get to ask you what you think I thought of this movie. Yes. What did Pete think of this movie? I, um, I think you thought it was interesting. I don't know if I'd say it's a film that you enjoyed, but I think you found it interesting. Okay. Uh, I think based on your tone in talking about what you think I thought of this movie, that you thought the same. I feel like this is <laughs> this is a it has some some highlight performances, some interesting twists and turns, and overall is a fair to middling experience. Huh, okay. Am I am I close? Well, we're we'll not, see. I guess we're, we're not see. saying yet. We're not saying yet. Uh, Our Time Will Come was rated PG-13 when it was released uh, here in the U.S. And, you know, it's just because it's a war film, I guess. You know, war sorts of things happen. That's where we sit with this one. Yeah, well, there's some straight-up CG bullet holes. (laughs) There are CG bullet holes, for sure. Yeah, straight up. (laughs) 
want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, if you see an Apple or an Amazon link to this movie in our show notes, just click on it. It'll take you right to their site and you can rent or buy the movie. And when you do it, they give us a little tiny, a little tiny chunk of change. So it's a, it's a win-win for all of us. You get to watch the movie. We get a little tiny chunk of change and Amazon gets a, a or Am- Apple get a big chunk of change. Uh, maybe Anne Hui even gets a penny or two. I don't know. I hope Anne Hui gets some Chandini. I hope, I hope she, she gets a sniff. She gets a sniff <laughs> off of everything you guys, you guys buy from us. That's right. Uh, yeah. And you know what? You know who gets who else gets a sniff of stuff? Us. When you visit the True Story uh, merch store, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. Got shirts, logos. Uh, you can put it on anything, really. You want to put really? uh, the, the relic. Uh, stained glass covered in black mold on a, a, a cell phone case. You could do that. I, you know, I've not seen anybody do that, but I triple dog dare you to do that. I think that would be a great case and look appropriately steampunk broken. That would be great. Uh, also, <laughs> you could get the Spicoli Surf School uh, or Rusty's European Tour. Uh, shirts uh, and merch because those are weirdly popular <laughs> in our store over the holiday season. Uh, now that the holiday season is past, though, we are shaking th- some things up. Some things are coming down uh, after the new year and uh, new things are coming up. So, you know, if you're interested and you're listening to this live stream, get them now and then come back later in the new year and get some more. We want to feature audio reviews from you. Just send a 30-second audio review of your thoughts on the films we're talking about to reviews at truestory.fm. Right as soon as you watch the movie, we'll hold on to it. We'll keep it ready. Uh, and we just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. Got to get them in quick, though. We record about two weeks in advance. So watch the movie, record your clip, send it in to us, and we will drop it in the show. Again, send it to reviews at truestory.fm. I'm not going to do that, Andy. That's that's stupid, because how would I possibly know what movie you're going to talk about in the future? How would I possibly know that, Andy? That's dumb. Stop. Stop saying dumb things. But <laughs> I would jump in there if you were to say that to Andy. I would say, hey, wait a minute. Andy's my friend. And also, we have a solution for that. You just visit letterboxd.com slash the next reel. That is our profile, our HQ page on Letterboxd, and it has lists of all the movies we're going to talk about. So before you get all twisted up in yourself and get all upset with Andy, who did nothing, by the way, to merit this kind of attention, go to that page, letterboxd.com slash the next reel, and you'll see the watch list of all the movies we're talking about in future tense. And then you can watch ahead with us like we do and send us your reviews and, and you know, be nice. Yes. And also, you're going to fall in love with it there. You're going to fall in love with it. You're going to feel so good about your experience with Letterbox because they're really nice people and they run a great service. It is the perfect social network for movie lovers. And you're going to say, how can I remove these ads and support the team at Letterbox? And while I'm at it, give the guys at the next reel a little sniff. Uh, well, that's easy. You just uh, go to thenextreel.com slash Letterbox and that will direct you to the upgrade page on Letterbox service. And it will already have the upgrade code in place so that you can just buy and upgrade your letterbox experience to pro or patron with a 20% discount off of the price of that. And then you'll have no ads. You will be supporting everybody that needs to be supported and you will have a great letterbox experience as you build your movie loving uh, letterboxed life. There you go. You can also, there, there is actually an upgrade 
a link in the bot in the footer uh, where you can go and, and upgrade it without going to our fancy link. If you do that, the code is NextReal. Twenty percent off works for renewals and new users as well. And you know what? It is the holiday season. And if you're looking for a way to show your support of this independent podcast, what better way than by signing up to become a member? If you're familiar with Patreon and you don't see us over there when you search for it, that's because we're using Patreon's other platform. It's called Memberful. They integrate the platform right into your own website. So if you visit our site, our membership page, uh, then essentially you're visiting us on Patreon. It's just through our own site. And, uh, you know, if you want to become a member, you can become either month to month or at an annual rate. You get all sorts of fantastic holiday goodies. And you know what else I've, I've been hearing? Have you been hearing the memberful ads uh, on other podcasts? They're actually advertising on podcasts now. Smart. Memberful. Yeah. And and so if you if you are running a community and you sign up to be a memberful customer, tell them you came from the next reel. So maybe they'll come sponsor us. That'd be great. Uh, also, <laughs> members get access to so many fantastic bonuses. My God, there are so many bonuses. We're wrapping up the year. How many? We did, what, 50 regular shows? And how many bonuses did we do, Andy? Like 300? Uh, it, it, <laughs> it, for, we put a lot of time into member shows that, that the rest of the world does not hear. And so uh, that's what you get when you sign up and, and uh, join to become a member here at The Next Reel. We sure hope you join the club. Uh, we love doing stuff just for members. We love the community. Uh, we've got our monthly member bonus episode that fills in the gap from one of our past series. Members also get to vote on movies that we'll be talking about uh, upcoming in our monthly member bonus episodes. We've got a flick chart re-ranking episode, and we're doing the re-ranking episodes, or the retake episodes at the end of each series. Uh, really, really fun. TrueStory.fm slash T and our membership to learn more about our membership tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 a month or $55 a year. Welcome to the man cave. On this couch, wearing clothes made from recycled plastic. And I haven't showered since Thursday. Mandy Fabian. And on this couch, lover of all things real housewives and fart jokes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, God. Mandy Kaplan. Each week, these best friends and polar opposites hunt down a movie, TV show, or trend. Whether it's Brene Brown or Little House on the Prairie. Or something good. Okay, that's unnecessary. And drag it back to the cave to duke it out. I'm just saying the Ingles never break into song and it needs Not it. everything has everything to be. Everything needs music. You think everything Schindler's List should be a musical? Everything would be better Ugh, if everyone would worst. just sing. It's the worst. It's the worst. I should sing You're that. You're the worst. Uh, ladies, can we get back to the... Sorry, uh... Tune into the Man Cave wherever you get your podcasts to see if the friendship survives. You're so dramatic. It's a comedy podcast. So's your face. <gasps> That's a good one. Okay, Andy. Pedro. What'd you think of Blackie Lau? <laughs> I loved Blackie Lau. <laughs> what a fun character. <laughs> I thought I thought he could be Captain China. You know, we've got like he gets the team together. He's a rogue. Running the the running across and and causing mayhem and mischief in the first half of the movie. I I really that is. I want to start with a high point with this movie. I really liked Blackie Lau. I thought he was a lot of fun. He was a he was a real rogue. Yeah, I really liked him. Yeah, so that's positive. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um. So 
<laughs> before we dig in too much, I just I, I have to say what what I found most interesting when I started this film is we're watching this movie and uh, like I'm a little confused when it starts. And I'm like, I just don't know enough and I'm, I'm not sure what's happening. And it really made me realize how Eurocentric, like all of the World War II history that I learned uh, over the course of my life was. It's like, yeah. I mean, I knew Japan was involved. I knew they bombed Pearl Harbor. I knew that there were um, a lot of other, uh, you know, conflicts that had happened. But all the conflicts that I really learned about, other than like a paragraph or two about, you know, Japan occupying Hong Kong, things like that, it was really when they came into direct conflict with the United States. I didn't learn much. I learned a lot about things going on in Europe with the Nazis and everything. But even thinking about that, it's like, you know, it, all of my learning primarily focused on Hitler with little bits of Japan and little bits of Italy. It's like I didn't learn as much of those other things. And so when I was watching this film, I'm like, this is a whole perspective on World War II that I just don't get very often. And we're not taught very often. And so as I was watching, I'm like, it's really interesting to kind of watch this story thinking about how, yeah, people, uh, you know, over in Asia, this is probably more in line with the types of stories they're so much more regularly taught than we are. And we're all taught so much more of the Eurocentric leanings. And, and to that end, I found it to be a really interesting film because I'm like, this is exciting to kind of watch a film that is on this side of the world dealing with World War II issues that don't involve the United States in any way. And so, you know, I really appreciated that uh, this film ended up on our list just because of that. A hundred percent. And I will say with great enthusiasm, some of this stuff is like I file away as just completely mind blowing, like the, like the connections, the sort of interwoven threads uh, of of, you know, geopolitical stage is fascinating. It's fascinating to me that that all of this happened. And it was great. And what I really like about about that the the spectacle of this examination is that it also feels like such a parallel to so much of the eurocentric uh filmmaking that we've seen or storytelling that we've seen like you could you could transplant so many of the spy versus spy characters into movies that we <laughs> that we've watched and talked about um and and yet here we are looking at it. it's like wow oh this same stuff was happening over here uh on the other side of the planet and we just have never explored it and i thought that was great and then I I stop and I think, God, there's so much wonderful stuff going on. Why am I struggling to stay awake during this movie? <laughs> it's like there's like such high points in this movie and such like interesting things going on. And I really I, I found myself really struggling um, to to track with it now. To your point, it could be that so much of this was was just new context to me and it was just overclocking my you know CPU. But uh, or overtaxing my CPU, but I I don't think that's true. I'm uh, I'm a grown man, and I'm interested in learning, and I think I can keep up with stuff. I ha I think I am learning that I'm struggling with um, Anne Hui's direction, and this movie felt, in spite of having incredible source material and some real high points, it it struggled to keep my attention, and I I think that's a directing thing. 
I didn't I didn't hate it. I, and I want to say that I didn't hate the movie. I really didn't. I just struggled with it. And I really I you know, when you start with the documentary framing device, you, you're already setting the bar at a certain point of antagonism for me like that's i'm not sure that that worked i liked it more than you uh definitely i found it to be an interesting glimpse into uh into this world um i really really liked all the characters like i i, mm-hmm. I found everything um just uh you know once once i could kind of wrap my head around what was happening and you know it did take me stopping you know, shortly, like 10 minutes into it and uh, doing a little bit of history lesson online to try contextualizing things a little bit more. So I had a better sense of things. Um, once I was able to do that, and I was able to really kind of get into the movie, like it, it, I, it really flowed for me. I found myself uh, kind of really going along for the ride. I, I do agree that, you know, by the time I, I got to the end, I felt like it wasn't so much. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm torn a little bit on the directing because I do think that there's there's a level where I I don't know if the directing worked as strongly for me, but I also don't know if it might just be the script because mm-hmm. there were um, the way the script was shaped. It's like it didn't quite uh, it it didn't end up going in, in a direction where I ended up feeling wholly satisfied by the by the time I got to the end. Um, you know, and I don't know if I don't know exactly what I would have needed changed to really kind of find it as strong as i was hoping it would have been but i still found it to be um just a really interesting story and you know i i actually liked the documentary framing device it very much reminded me of uh warren Beatty's reds uh which is a similar project where you know he is telling the story about um the people during the uh the you know uh, the russian revolution while integrating a lot of interviews of people who were actually there and knew the characters and so that was it's an interesting way to kind of contextualize it in history but then have the story wrapped around it as well and and for me that i, I found to be a really interesting thing that just kind of gave it a a layer of realism that I, I felt that it needed, like I felt like it needed that grounding because sometimes it just it felt like a very glossy. Uh, the production style seemed glossy, and um, and so having that documentary uh, framing device in there grounded it more for me. So I definitely appreciated that. And yeah, I, I all in all, I mean, you know, I think I think it was actually a, a pretty interesting story, and so um, I I would say I liked it. Well, I think that's an interesting thing. On the documentary framing device, I, for me, you know, when we start with a framing device like that, I'm just circumspect. Is this going to pay off? Is there merit to having this framing device in there at the end that is going to make me turn around at the end and say that was worth it? It was worth using, breaking up the the story into these sort of vignettes to, uh, for you know, to to move us through time or to allow characters to mature to tell these parts of the story by way of a complete change in tone to the point where the the documentary stuff is in black and white until the very end um and uh it, you know will i feel resolved at the end and it's touch and go for me on this so i'm i'm already skeptical going into it and by the end that last little vignette we in, we're introduced to the kid 
who is the old man in the framing device. And I come away from that segment not feeling like he like having that connection in particular was uh, the most valuable one to in in the film. Like I I didn't feel like like his I I didn't get why his role was to be highlighted that way. And we only meet him at the end. So the kid um, he's in it through right, the whole film. But, oh, he was in school with her. Where did we meet him at the beginning? He's the kid who. Uh, like it's not it's not at the beginning, but it's like it's like you know uh, within the like the end of the first act or so. He's the one who um, he comes in when um, you know he goes and digs up the stuff that uh, that Blackie Lau had buried by the tree and marked, and then he delivers right. it. He delivers it to um, uh, Fang and her friend, and they stay there. And then we see him throughout, kind of doing deliveries and stuff. He kind of became a delivery boy. That's the thing I remember was him getting the the package under the tree. But I remember that as later in the film. I didn't remember that as earlier as the, so early in the film. Oh no, it was yeah, it was it was within the first. I'd say toward about a half hour in or so. I I still I I just felt like was it worth having that highlight uh, on that character throughout the course of the film to to give us you know to give us that framing device? I didn't. I just walked away from it having not needed it. Uh, I do find I you know to counter my own point is <laughs> the final shot like that final pan over Hong Kong from it, Hong Kong of the period to Hong Kong in two thousand seventeen. Uh, I found that particular shot stunning, stunning, right? And there is something about using the old man and the kid and that framing device to bring us from the point of, you know, war-torn countryside to today and this modern metropolis that is Hong Kong. I I thought that was um, that was a, an interesting thread uh, all the way through. And so I think there is probably a case to be made, if I'm not making it successfully, that that his use in the film overall actually helps make that that final shot more impactful. It was amazing uh, to me, like just seeing it that first time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I, I do think that there are elements within that documentary framing vi- device that that aren't that that I questioned a little bit. Like, I really enjoyed hearing from him, and as I said, it helped ground the whole story for me. I, I felt like it, it seemed to slip a little bit when we kind of stepped back from the one-on-one interview with him. And then all of a sudden we're meeting him and all his friends and we have Aunt yeah. Hui in there also kind of actually directing the, or kind of having that documentary direction in that moment. Um, and so like, that's a moment that I was like, well, I, I don't know, like, what was that for? I, I wasn't sure if that, helped or not i kind of preferred just sticking with kind of the one-on-one more personal thing i guess it was just so that we could kind of build to that end where we see him go back out and hop in his taxi to get back to work sort of thing and you know again i'm not sure i needed that either you know i I, i'm a little torn on that element Uh, but the actual conversation with him i really enjoyed I'm actually curious why you're torn on that, because that actually was the that was, again, that that sort of transformation of like, look at where this this kid was a a gorilla in fighting in in the countryside as a kid. And now he drives a cab and there has to be impact there. Right. And that sure. I, I felt like that transition to color, like that's that's the payoff. So was it was it I feel like now you've made me actually 
uh, a real advocate for it. And I don't care for your strategy. Well, there. I, no, it's it's the I, I, it's more than anything. I think it's just the it's really the shot where we step back and then it's just him talking with all of his buddies because they they weren't part of it. And I don't know if that was the point, you know, that, you know, all these people are together, whichever side they were on. Uh, but now they're all working together. I, like, I, I don't know why we pulled back to that. I guess more than anything, it's it's that less less of an issue with him driving in his cab at the end. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it it does get to I, 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 a point that I I wanted to talk about, which is you know how well this film captures the the sort of grandeur of the story that I think who he was attempting to tell here. Right? Are we looking at a story that is? I was bouncing around between these words. Like, is it? Does it feel historic? Like like giant and uh, you know sort of Dunkirk level scale, uh, or does it feel historical? Is it a a story that really just presents the a a historical fiction it is a fiction right there's no there's no captain china is there blackie lao i i started looking for this because it felt like maybe she's trying to tell a fictional story of true people and i didn't find anything i don't know my sense was the way that they frame it all with the documentary made me feel yeah. like it was you know based on kind of his his story and everything so i yeah i don't know it's but was he an actor doing this that was that that i think is the thing that that may highlight my ignorance uh wow you're going down a a a road i hadn't even considered um and i guess that's an interesting element that it just speaks to um a side of us not being aware enough of this uh, of these historical elements yeah my impression was that it was real documentary footage and or and Hui was in there doing real direction of this documentary scene, and this story was constructed on on a real person. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of how I how I read the whole thing. Well, and it, because, you know, if you look at the just judging from the synopsis, right, set in the 1940s, the film tells the story of a legendary woman, Fang Gu, who is one of the key figures in the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong. Um, and talks all about the resistance troops and and the struggle for me. It it is, you know, that indicates to me that maybe there is a some truth to this legendary woman Fangu, and that we're telling essentially a fictionalized, you know, historical true story as best we can. I I don't know though. I I can't confirm it, and it's unclear to me. Yeah, I I don't know if you know we're the ones to kind of find the right information to say this is based on on a fact. I I you know, I mean I've poked around online and I have found references but you know it's it's not very clear how at least at least in our reading over here on this side of the the world I just don't get a lot of committal in the writings saying that this is based on fact but what i do feel is based on fact are obviously a lot of the things that the story is about as far as the the revolutionaries uh in hong kong fighting to um you know fighting back against the japanese uh to you know kind of protect the country uh, and you know that that part of china and some characters are real, like Mao Dun in the first act, right? They're, 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 we meet the gorillas and they're all working together to free the intellectuals and the writers and get them to free China. And Mao Dun is one of our central characters. And Mao Dun was a real person, right? A real writer and journalist and, um, 
you know, so I think there is there is at least some sense of truth to this story. Yeah, I think so. So anyway, oh, it goes back to my I, I remember where I was. Uh, does it feel historical that, like it's telling a story of, uh, you know, of the time and is doing its best to to be sort of complete in that effort? Or does it feel histrionic, which is more like, like is it just kind of a melodrama of of the experience of this war movie, which is also fine. There are some great uh, war melodramas that are big and emotional and romantic and, and does, you know, does it capture that sort of sense and sensibility? And I think this movie is an example of bouncing between the three. I would say it is less like it. Uh, the poster makes me think it's a giant, giant, big, old, grand war story. And it doesn't ultimately end up feeling like a giant, giant, big, old, grand war story to me. Um, but it, it but it bounces. It plays in that sort of playground. Generally, uh, I, I I just find like I it that perhaps it's the lack of commitment to the to one of those that that I struggle to to maintain my energy around it. It's it's hard to say I, as far as historic versus historical. I I mean, I don't think that we're necessarily seeing anything that's, quote, big enough uh, to call it historic. That may be my naivete again with, you know, kind of World War Two yeah. and this side of the world. But I don't like even as I think about it, like other than perhaps, you know, that initial rescuing of the of the people like perhaps something like that would be like a historic rescue i don't know um but i don't feel like there was anything other that was like so large and specific over the course of the film that would be that would register as historic um yeah i i did have a sense there was kind of a historical uh, kind of story just kind of about the revolutionaries and the way that they were working against Japan to save whoever they could to get them out and really just to kind of fight the occupation, um, you know, with their spies and through all the different elements that they were doing. And so I found that there's a kind of a historical element, but it does, to your point, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I, I think I, I connected with the characters so much is because, yeah, I mean, I think there is that historical drama element. I didn't find it melodramatic. I found it worked fairly well, and I enjoyed the the way that these characters moved through this particular uh, story. And I think that's a lot of times in these historical war stories, I think that is what you kind of um, what you kind of want to have in them, because that's where you get uh, connected to the characters and you're able to kind of really go along with the story. And if it's just a historical story, it ends up feeling very documentary. You don't end up having as much connection to the characters. And so to that end, mm -hmm. I mean, like I, I really genuinely, uh, like with Fong, like I, I felt very connected with her as a character, as somebody who's kind of taken this journey to become a revolutionary and especially her mom just loved her. Um, like, those two I, I found just incredibly captivating. And same thing with Blackie Lau. I just, I really enjoyed watching the journey that they were going on as they were trying to, um, you know, trying to get things working. And even her um, ex, who was working at the, uh, gosh, I can't remember what the name of the place is, the um, Kem Kempe Thai, the, the Kempe Thai, the kind of the, um, uh, I don't know, it was the, what was that place? Kind of the prison, kind of, right? Well, or, it was the prison, but also, yeah, I mean, the, the that, his, his boss, 
uh, seemed to be like more of an essential character, essential part of the war effort than maybe he was leading on. Right. And and I I don't know. It felt like it felt like Lee had maybe too much access to everything. I, I mean, that's the point. He was a double agent. He was he was working on behalf of Blackie Lau, uh, you know, as, a, a, you know, agent inside the yeah. Japanese headquarters. So, you know, good for him uh, making lots of copies of stuff. Yeah. Swallowing so much paper. Everybody ate paper. That was cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of the workings, like that's, I, I found so interesting to just kind of watch the workings. Like when he got the warning that um, that they knew there was somebody inside, he dropped the note to that girl, said, leave immediately. And she just, she basically ate that paper and left. And it was like, it was, I don't know, I found it so interesting to see how many chess pieces they had on the board and how they were very effectively kind of working all of them. So, I, I, yeah, I it was it was pretty engrossing. That's a great example, though, of a scene that I feel like is more historical versus histrionic, where I would have wanted it to be a little bit more dramatic, right? That that escape, uh, the intensity of that escape was like at a four the whole time. And I kind of wanted it. I needed it to get to be, you know, closer to an eight. Like I wanted her to feel some legitimate threat. And I never felt legitimate threat for her walking down the hill, bowing kindly to the guards who were there and then leaving. Well, and I, for me, I guess the the scene for me was less about her escaping and more just about him as he was keeping his people safe, because like that was not somebody we had known before. She just was there. Mm -hmm. If it was somebody who we had known and we had been following her, then yes, I I agree with you. But as it is, I I guess I didn't worry too much about it. The one place that I do definitely agree with you that I felt ended up really lacking the power. And um, because of that, it just, it, it, like it was a place where I really noticed uh, and I questioned, like, is is there something else Anne Hui could have done in this particular scene to really deliver? And it was when uh, when Fong goes back to, I don't remember, it was like a small village to find Blackie and talk to him about how his mother had been arrested. Mm-hmm. And he had been, he was there kind of villagers were protecting him, feeding him, uh, stitching his clothes, all of that. And, you know, the two of them are talking that all of a sudden someone comes in, the Japanese are here and we see them, they, they help them get onto this path and start fleeing only to find that there are some Japanese soldiers on the path. They shoot the two of them. Um, and then all of a sudden, like there's a whole, a whole stream of lights overhead on the slope of the hill above them pointing down at them. Such a cool reveal. It was a great reveal. And then, and then they flee by running down the hill and then is then eventually falling because it's such a steep slope and they tumble all the way down until they land in the stream below. And that was a scene that should have, for me, carried so much more uh, kind of excitement and weight and really been like a, a threat of will they actually make it out of this thing. Um, and it kind of turns into this slow kind of slow-mo fall of them as they're rolling down the hill with kind of the the um, the bullet kind of the bullets zipping over them and stuff. And yeah. And, and I, you know, Joe Hisaishi, who's, you know, he's one of my 10 J's. I, I love his scores. 
in this particular scene, like the music didn't carry the weight that it needed to either. And so like everything <laughs> fell flat in that scene. And it was very frustrating for me. And so, yeah, I, I, I feel your pain, how there are scenes in this film that feel like they should have more weight and don't quite hit it. That And, and that is another terrific example as they slide and it goes into this dreamy like i i kind of felt like they were maybe it's just because i just saw spider-man but i felt like they were sliding into the into the multiverse like it is so dreamy and uh, like it it becomes so kind of hand wavy and glossy and blurry and and the tracers are so beautiful like they're it, it is really beautiful but it ends in a giant harumph like as they land in the water and it's just like they stand up and that's the end of (laughs) the scene. There's like, there's nothing, there's nothing. And I, I needed to be real threat. And to go back to my, to the last scene I was talking about, I didn't even need to have hers be the threat as she's walking down the hill past the garden. I just felt like even Lee was not under any sort of threat. Like he was able to help her leave and just watch her go from the balcony. Like there was no sense that he was potentially in trouble. So these are just examples, I think, of that, uh, of, of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Like great setups, great, great spy espionage, like wartime threat setups that, that are, that end, you know, that, that end with a, a kind of a lame rim shot. Mm. Interesting. I do feel that there are those uh, elements. I I don't think I found quite as many of them um, in the film as it seems you did. Well, I I go all the way to the end. Her final hug, her final hug with uh, Blackie Lau as he gets off, uh, he he runs off into the into the boat and sails off into the into the end. This I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the love sort of weird love triangle in the movie it's more of a love vector i guess um where lee starts by proposing to her the entire movie starts where where he's proposing he wants to get married with her uh in the first act and she says no why would we do that because you know like we're going to war why would we or everybody's uncertain and you're about to leave you know you're going to take this job why would i possibly want to get married to you right now what's the point well um now we we see toward the end that there is uh she also likes Blackie Lau like there's there's a real sense that she has she's attracted to him so it, it there is an undercurrent of potential romance that is ultimately unrequited and i can't believe i'm saying this i kind of wanted more of a romance movie in this in this thing because at the very end when Blackie Lau leaves on the boat she ends with the most sanitized smile that I've ever seen. Like, where's he going? It's uncertain future. I, I want, I want a little bit more drama. It, Joe Hisaishi's score there, I think, is beautiful, and it it captures the wonderful overall tone and theme of an experience of the movie that I wanted, and I just didn't see it in the characters on screen. It was like almost the opposite, like too much weight in the emotional, like what they were trying to do with this beautiful score to uh, to pair it with, you know, some uh, just kind of middling to fair see you laters. Uh Well, I mean, I, 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 I can see your point a little bit. I, I don't think I 
uh, I, I'm glad it didn't go down the romance road. And, you know, I mean, that's often one of those things. Not even like, a little bit. Need... Not even a kiss. No, because not it's even... one of those things. Like, do we need to have, like, it's so often we ask ourselves, why are they having a relationship in this movie only just to have a relationship? And it's so frustrating. And it's like, we don't need that here. And the whole, the whole proposal at the beginning, I mean, you know, it, that all felt like he was just doing it because he felt like he needed to do it. It didn't feel like he was uh, that sincere about it. It just felt like the thing to do, kind of like when she goes to her cousin's wedding and her cousin's like, you know, it just needed to do it. And yeah, um, yeah. and and so, yeah, I think that she felt that coming from Lee when he proposed. Like, you know, he's just doing it because he's just feeling like that it just, they should do it, but it's not really something that that he was looking to do. And so I, I never felt like there was that intense romance there anyway. It, it felt like she was too, um, you know, the direction in her life was not, I just want to be a, kind of, you know, the wife sitting at home sort of thing. Like she had so much more potential. And I think that there is a connection with Blackie, but I never felt like, I never read it as a romantic connection. I felt like, um, almost like he was this mentor that had had brought her down this road, and um, at the end when they were parting, it was that you know, that you know acknowledgement that you know they might never have the opportunity to work together again. It might be that might be it for them. Their time has come, and the war is going to be taking them in different directions, and that's it. And so I felt more like that, and never really felt like there was a romantic uh, hint for them. At least that's the way I read it. Mm-hmm. I felt like this is I'm, I'm sure I'm bringing some stereotypes to the movie, some some tropiness to the movie. But because, you know, from the moment we are introduced to Blackie Lau uh, in the opening sort of escape kerfuffle um, and he kills that guy uh, stabbing him in the neck. That was cool. Yeah. Um, I, I felt like there was a, like, we begin the transformation of the school teacher to the spy. Yeah. And these, you know, what I characterize as sort of tiny twists of fate that, that turned the teachers and mothers into agents, um, in, you know, in the case of context, uh, I think was really special. And her introduction there felt like such a natural way to, to bring more weight to their to their relationship like she i could totally imagine her kind of you know being involved in that extreme situation and having an outlet that looks that that's very much blackie lao shaped <laughs> like he becomes this legendary hero right and has lots so many great legendary hero hero moments when he stands up in the middle of that uh, of that banquet and says i'm the guy you're looking for that was such a great action beat right that was such a great moment uh and and i felt like that's a guy she could she she could you know logically crush on and that's probably too simple of a of a read of the film i i get that but you're such a typical but I, I wanted it <laughs> i i guess i am i guess i am i felt like the movie was trying to set me up it, it's just sort of another example of like the movie setting me up for a thing and my brain playing at playing it out in a in my head in a movie that i think i liked better I think it's clear already from our conversation that you are the one who's in love with Blackie Lau here, Pete. It's 100% uh, uh, Andy, clear. 
A hundred percent. I love my love. I think Eddie Ping is fantastic. And to that point, I, I, I start looking at the casting of, of all of these characters, right? From Wallace uh, Huo Chinhua, who, who played Lee, and he is a Taiwanese actor, singer, and producer, and Eddie Ping, who is a actor, singer, and model. And I just felt like, my God, all the casting of these actor, singer, like Chinese, Taiwanese actor, singer, producers, is this the equivalent of just casting Harry Styles in Dunkirk as like every character? <laughs> like they're all they all are complete, like multi-talented, multi-marketed uh, performers. And it, it, I actually thought they were great. I think the I think the the casting of this was was really perfect. And yes, I, I do love Captain China. I don't know. I didn't read their relationship that way ever. I I found it to be the way that he was so charismatic as this revolutionary leader who kind of comes into her life in such a surprising and violent way. Um it 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 more than anything, it opened the doors for her to uh, the future that she had been kind of hoping to find. You know, like I, I feel like she was one of those characters who was um, was strong and had something just kind of probably felt like, you know, if this is a musical, she would have that song, like, you know, what am I meant to become sort of song. And, um, that moment when he did that and kind of introduced her and kind of thrust her into this whole thing, um, it became that moment for her where it's just like a chance for more and a chance to do something and a chance to kind of become somebody. And so that's how I always read uh, their relationship. He was just this this person in her life who was the one who was able to kind of help her become something more. All right. I guess I just needed her to be a little bit more thirsty. <laughs> You're the that's thirsty okay. one here. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Okay. Uh and of course Dini Yip uh as mom. This this is probably my favorite character arc in the movie. Um uh, mostly because I found such a connection to her after the simple life. I think she's just fantastic and um and to watch her make that transformation not necessarily because of her advocacy of any particular side of the war but to just help out her daughter is <laughs> just uh, I thought it was great. And and the fact that she makes that turn and then sort of oozes into uh, the uh, her feeling of of passion toward the role that she's undertaken to the very end where she makes that that final uh, her final sort of speech. You know, I'll I'll never tell my daughter if you get out of here, tell my daughter I'll never I'll never talk. Yeah, uh, I, I thought that was really great. Uh, and uh, so anytime she was on screen, I was I was attentive. Uh, she was, uh, yeah, absolutely a fantastic element of the story. And it was really uh, like you said, I mean, her journey was very powerful. And it's interesting how she kind of never saw that for her daughter. And then but her daughter takes on the role and then i love that transition how she also does start doing these little things like oh i'll let you rest and i'm just going to go deliver this medicine to uh, the herb shop or whatever you know and just did these little tiny things and yeah i mean it was a it was a big surprise when she is caught and you know i suppose to a certain extent like she never had the blackie lao character in her life to kind of train her on being covert but still she did a pretty good job of it but still i think there was a little bit of uh naivete with kind of the way that she jumped into it especially 
when she did bring that other uh, girl on the boat and they got caught. I mean, that's it's a it's a it's a tough uh, direction that her story ends up going. And it's a dark journey for sure. But um, but I was really um, moved by the way that her story um, that that it did resolve. It was it was a it was a a difficult journey, but I I really was glad that that uh, that she was in it and, and just carried that role so well. Yeah, I think that um, I, would you naturally assume or, or figure out how to hide the the roll of paper in your the hem of your shirt? Like, would that be a a thing that you could naturally do? I feel like I would be thinking other things, but the idea of like sewing it into a seam was uh, was so pretty smart. clever. Yeah, pretty clever. It's, it's so smart, especially. I mean, I I, just, I think she was great at making the case, and I so I I think only in in hindsight, like I don't know that that would be the first thing that I would figure out, but I'm really glad she did, and I think that's it was just really smart. Um, and the way it was portrayed never made me question it or take me out of my head in watching the movie. I was like, oh, that's that's really cool. Exactly. Yeah, it was very cool. Good for her. And, yeah. and it, but it was a really interesting surprise. And this is something that, um, you know, took me by surprise quite a bit when, when she does get to the boat. How those um, I think they were um, people from India who were working also. Uh, with the yes. Japanese yeah, in that the, particular the, case. It looked like Sikhs uh, yeah. on the boat. Right. And how they actually, uh, I, it almost felt like they were extorting everybody. Like the way that they were demanding everyone give them all their money to to get the boat going. Like it was kind of a surprise. And then the way that they actually start searching everybody because they're like, oh, they're always hiding their money uh, only to discover that paper. It's just one of those just you know it's it's one of those tragic things that happens in a story like this you know it's just such a simple thing you get the wrong people there who are doing that search and that's it well and she does have as we'll see in the next movie that we talk about some real boat tragedy that just continues which in in the movie we're going to talk about next week i mean she's got a <laughs> thing with boats and hui nothing good ever happened to Anne hui on a boat <laughs> that should be on a shirt <laughs> All right. Um, anything else that's uh, hot for you? I do. I guess I do ask the question that the last couple of movies that we've talked about with Anne Hui uh, have not been particularly action oriented movies. Well, Simple Life. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that was definitely a quiet relationship story. And then mm-hmm. uh, Song of the Exile. It never really goes into the war elements that are there kind of in um you know the grandfather's storyline things like that it, mm-hmm. it you have a sense of stuff around but you know we see that story so much from the daughter's perspective and she's as she says she's fairly clueless to that stuff that's going on in the world and so i i feel like we're purposefully kept out of that and that ends up feeling much more just like a mother daughter um bonding drama mm-hmm. and so yeah mm-hmm. this uh, this film definitely is I, I don't know enough about Anne Hui's filmography to determine how often she's done war films, how often she hasn't. But knowing what we're going to be talking about next week, and that being kind of uh, a film that certainly is taking place um, kind of in, in wartime uh, or post-wartime, this one feels, you know, kind of in line with that more than the previous two. Well, so how do you think she handles uh, shooting this sort of action? Uh, sometimes pretty good. 
sometimes uh, I feel like I, I, I don't feel it works quite as well. Also, as a side note to this part of the conversation, this is a period drama, obviously. And to that end, we do end up seeing some CG elements periodically. It's not a ton of stuff, but, but I, and I don't know why, but like the quality of the CG doesn't seem as high as I guess we're just used to over in kind of the Hollywood standards. But like when, um, when the bombings start happening, there's like an, uh, an air raid and, um, you know, a whole bunch of planes are flying overhead. We have her look out the window and we see all these kind of squadrons flying by. Those planes looked really fake. And yeah. likewise, as you already mentioned, we have kind of those CG bullet holes that that pop up in the end of the film. And, uh, you know, I mean, as, as David Fincher has proven, you don't necessarily need to do um, real kind of squibs or anything like that anymore. CG blood, all of that stuff works exceptionally well in the right hands. And in the case of this film, just the CG all always felt a little shoddy, shoddier than it should have been. Yes, I agree. And when it's a period film, that makes it a little harder because you're already buying into this older world. And so modern, low-quality CG makes it harder to read. Right. I absolutely agree with that. Um, And uh, still, we do have some moments of in uh, you know more intense action like you mentioned the the planes stand out but we do have the bombing scene we have the chase through the jungle scene we have um you know we do have some some straight up action beats and um and, and i i never quite got the feeling that uh that this was sort of home plate or home base for for her at all it always felt just a little bit sideways uh, not so much that i that it it took me necessarily out of the film but it, it I, I again i think maybe it was those beats you know writ large that that i struggled with my um you know with my setup payoff concerns well and i mean yeah i think there is an element of of certain directors and you know we've seen this plenty of times uh, with films that are made over here in hollywood where it feels like a director who just doesn't quite have a handle on the scope of their picture and it just seems a little too much for them to to handle you know and um there are elements of that and so those are the elements that i had a harder time with i had an easier time when Huey was directing more of the character-focused stuff. Like, that that's the stuff that ended up working well for me. Um, that being said, I mean, there were some moments within those, like when, uh, when we have uh, Blackie and Fong on that trail, and they run into those two Japanese soldiers, they turn around and pull their guns out and shoot them. Like, like that part of that whole scene that was handled really well. Like I, I enjoyed the way that played out. It's just the yeah. entire rest of it that just kind of fell apart for me. So there are some moments where she has some nice camera movement with the characters that kind of give us those, those beats that worked, but sometimes it just, it, you know, when it's, when it's larger, it just doesn't carry quite the weight that I am looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. And I, you know, some of those, some of those big hero mo- moments worked really well. And she used the, she used the same kind of tropey stuff twice, uh, which I thought was, I, I shouldn't characterize it as tropey stuff, but it, I thought it was interesting. The whole hijack, the hijack, the narrative on the, on the road. We've already talked about the jungle surprise when all of the guns come out and they're the soldiers in the 
trees. That is essentially a replay of our opening uh, sequence when they meet the the gang on the on the road and they say, "Hey, we need permission to pass through your lands, and we're just a few meager guys, but we're trying to, you know, we're trying to negotiate." Well, we're not going to negotiate. Oh, surprise! All of our guys are up on the hill now, and and so that's a that's a thing that we we kind of replaced. I actually like those, uh, those two moments. I thought those were, yeah. th- those were fun bits of action, kind of uh, action, loose comedy that, that, uh, that I think played well, mostly in the hands of some incredibly charismatic, uh, actors, right. That they just, I think, pull it off. Yeah. Right. Right. Another, another moment that I, I really liked the way it played out. It was when Blackie and his, uh, team i guess we'll call it were this is early in the film when they're walking along the trail and they stop to take a break and they realize oh i was supposed to mark this tree back there so blackie runs off backwards to go mark the tree meanwhile they go get some water from the stream and there happens to be that uh that guy there who uh, turns out to be a spy and demands to see what they have wrapped up in this thing they're carrying it which is supposed to look like they're carrying a dead body so they can go bury it but it's actually full of weapons, turns into a big fight. Blackie comes in, all that sort of stuff. Like the way that that whole thing played out, like I thought that was great. I thought the way that they had wrapped up the corpse that they had just killed to replace it with the weapons because they knew those troops were coming, like all of that worked really well for me. So there are moments that really are handled very well. And and just there are, you know, bigger ones that sometimes just don't work. And like another one, I loved the relationship between Lee and his boss. Like that was I never quite Yamag- oh, like Colonel Yamaguchi. Yeah. yeah. Like that was an interesting relationship between the two of them. And and like the yeah. story he had about like the slashes on the legs and all that. And I also just have to say, I did find it very interesting that at the end, like he lets Lee go because as you said at the very beginning, he took the two slashes and didn't fall to fall to his knees. As soon as you walk out, as he walks out the door, though, because he says, I'll, let, I'll set you free, you hear the gunfire and you know that there were people waiting outside to kill him. Oh, I thought, God, I hate I, I hated that. But uh, I loved it. Hated it. Right. Like yeah. that was just crushing. There are a lot of bullet bullets fired off screen that are really weighty. Yeah. In yep. this movie. Right. Oh, geez. Like when they killed the dog, like when you, you hear those two bullet shots and then it's just like the yipping of the dog and whining. And it's just like, oh, my God, somebody put it out of his misery. Oh, I didn't I didn't care for that. That was tough. That was tough. Ugh, tough. Yeah. Well, I uh, I really I, I think that this is a really interesting film. And I, I think I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. Maybe more so now that we've had a chance to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, I I don't know that I like it any more than you liked <laughs> liked it after our conversation. I think I might feel more cemented in my opinion that I just wish for a, a little bit more from these characters from the way they were written. But I do feel like it might be less Anne Hui uh, issues that I have than it is with um, you know the script. I, I'm thinking that might might be it. Maybe I need to be thinking more about Heiji Ping uh, as a screenwriter than Anne Hui. I see. I see. Well, uh, lots to think about with this one. Um, But right now, uh, we're going to take a short break and read our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Enzo Bellomo, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please 
consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how did you do at awards season? Uh, really well. This film had 18 wins, 36 other nominations uh, at the, I mean, and again, this speaks to kind of what we had been saying um, with some of the previous films is a lot of the awards and festivals that it played at were uh, in Asia at the Asia Pacific Screen Awards, the Asian Film Awards, the Beijing uh, uh, or the the Changchun Film Festival, China Film Directors Guilds Awards, Chinese American Film Festival, Chinese Film uh, Festival, Chinese Film Media Awards, Faro Island Film Festival, Golden Horse Film Festival, Hong Kong Directors Guild Awards, Hong Kong Film Awards, just so many of these. Um, so I'm not going to uh, touch on many of these, but I just want to go through the Hong Kong Film Awards, where it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Dini Ip, Best Art Direction, and Best Original Score. Also nominated for uh, uh, Chun Zhao, uh, was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Teresa Mo in Tomorrow is Another Day. Best Cinematography, it was nominated, but lost to Chasing the Dragon. Best Costume and Makeup Design was nominated, but lost to Journey to the West, The Demons Strike Back. Interesting one. Best Film Editing was nominated, but lost to Chasing the Dragon. And uh, Best Screenplay, it was nominated, but lost to Love Education. Best Sound Design, it was nominated, and and lost to Paradox. So, yeah, lots of awards. Uh, kind of broad spectrum of recognition yeah. across acting and technical awards, direction, etc. All right. Well, uh, did, did all of those awards yield support at the box office did this film wouldn't make any money this is a tough series these Anne Huey films I tell you uh, no budget information is available for this one like last time this movie opened June 21st 2017 at the Shanghai Film Festival then China July 1st as you said to kind of tie in with the 20th anniversary of the handing over from uh, uh, the UK to uh, to China or Hong Kong. Uh, then it opened Hong Kong July 6th, the U.S. and Canada July 7th, opposite Spider-Man Homecoming and A Ghost Story. This only played for four weeks in the States, never really gaining much traction. It made 111.6 thousand domestically and 9.4 million internationally for a total gross of 9.9 million in today's dollars. But without the budget info, I just have no way to tell if it made or lost money overall. All right. Well, I, again, I don't... I. I feel like I didn't hate this movie. There is a lot to, to like and appreciate about this movie, and I still walked away feeling like I wanted a little bit more. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, if anything that I got from this, it's that I really would like to see more stories uh, of World War II kind of on this side of the world that, again, aren't necessarily U.S. focused. I think it's interesting to kind of get more perspective of what's going on over here. So, um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, what a neat uh, just exploration for of, of history that, you know, I I do like it when I, I feel like I'm opened up to a new perspective that I've just never I, I've never been introduced to. And uh, I, this was this was a really interesting one. The history of of Hong Kong and occupation and World War Two. Uh, fascinating. So I'm I'm in for that. Yeah, very much so. We will be right back with our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Boat People. Come 
，发梦都谂住要爱练菜个班，仲谂住搵我去做妈妈生。佢话我要做到七十岁。We're back uh, with uh, our conversation about Letterboxd and how we're going to rate this thing. I, it's a real horse race. Is it? I don't, I don't, yeah, I feel like who's, what are, I don't know, I don't know where you're going to land. I feel like after our conversation, there are quibbles. You have quibbles. But are you going to be like four star with quibbles or three, three and a half stars? I think I think I'll split the difference and say you're going to land at three and a half stars. I am three and a half is where <sighs> I sit with this one. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I I really enjoyed the film. It found I found it to be um, very interesting. I, I I loved the characters. I never connected quite as much as I wanted to. But three and a half with a heart is where I sit. What about you? Uh, I don't love it as much as you. Obviously, I think I probably came into this um, this conversation at at two and a half stars, and that is where I'm going to leave it. Two, two and a half, half. stars, uh, right down the middle. But but for you, I'm going to give it a heart. But this is a heart for Anne Huey. It's it, you know who it's a heart for. I think you know, Dini. Captain China, man. It's oh, Blackie Lau. My heart beats for Blackie Lau. Of course. Of course. So much charisma. So what did you think about Our Time Will Come? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we are going to be talking about this movie with you this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. You know, we didn't. Uh, one of the things that came out, uh, Sophie watched the movie with me, and um, um, she was really confused the whole time because she could understand it. And when you know she understands a movie, it's in Mandarin, and this was a Hong Kong movie, and very much should have been in Cantonese. And there were some some real cases of of dubbing issues i think some some of the characters were speaking cantonese to one another and some were speaking mandarin and it was a little bit confusing on that front but um one of the low end reviews um 
brings that whole point up and says, I went to Wikipedia to look the film up. Turns out Our Time Has Come was made to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to the PRC. Now everything makes sense. The movie is made to appeal to Chinese, not Hong Kong audiences, and more importantly, to the Communist Party. It's a propaganda film. It's also worth noting that the East River Guerrilla is a communist fighting force instead of a nationalist force, because the Chinese Nationalist Party was the leading faction that fought Imperial Japan during World War II. Um, that is, oh, in 2019, a World War II movie retelling an incredible military feat of defense against the unrelenting Japanese was barred from release, particularly because the soldiers performing the feats were nationalists, even though anti-Japanese flavor nationalism is always a safe choice in the Chinese film industry. I, I think that's, um, I think that's an interesting angle. Yeah. And again, truly highlights my ignorance in the, you know my surface understanding of what's going on. Well, it's interesting because it does make me, I mean, I, I get it. Like being a Hong Kong filmmaker in that period Mm -hmm. or in this period, 2017, this period, right. You're likely, uh, you know, working to a certain extent to appease the Chinese, uh, you know, government. And so, and Hui probably is, you know, walking the line between doing films she wants and doing films that, you know, that they're going to pay a lot of money for. So. Well, here's the this is a little bit later in the review. I don't dislike our time has come because it is propaganda. I dislike it because it's bad propaganda. And Hui has made some social realism movies and a long line of commercial ones. And this one firmly falls into the commercial camp. It's an artless husk beneath great cinematography, a cheap plastic trophy in celluloid form manufactured to kiss ass. I'm reading this one. <laughs> well, sounds like you just did. I think I, I, might I think have we just, just had that it. conversation. I think we just did. It's good. really long. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm not going to read the rest of it. But I think it is. Um, it it's a great. Um, it, it's a, a great perspective and one I I feel like I need to read up on. Definitely. Oh, by by the way, Letterbox giveth everybody. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'm I'm going a totally different direction. I ended up with Nugget Machine, who gave it three and a half stars and a heart just like me, and said, Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be resistance fighters under wartime occupation. Okay, to be fair to the mama, she did try to prevent exactly that. <laughs> that was awesome. I thought, I didn't expect you were going to sing. I love that you dropped singing into the uh, review. Sometimes. Oh, well done. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show. 
by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <music>